Okay, well, with 150 people and counting, um, that's more than enough for us to get started again this morning. I'm Simon Jackman, Professor of Political Science and CEO of the United States Study Center here at the University of Sydney. And uh, before I get started, um, I, as we always do, I acknowledge that the University of Sydney stands on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people. And the Gadigal, of course, form part of the Eora Nation of peoples surrounding the Sydney Basin here. And I acknowledge elders past, present and emerging. Uh, today, our guest is Nick Bryant, uh, correspondent for the BBC uh, based in North America. But um, Nick, um, I got to know Nick uh, during his uh, spell here in Australia. Um, and, and Nick, of course, covers American politics now as the beat uh, for the BBC. And, and just as it's a momentous time for us at the US Study Center, it's a momentous time for someone like Mick charged with covering American politics for, for the BBC. Um, but the triggering event, as it were, is, uh, is the publication of Nick's latest book, um, When America Stopped Being Great, uh, which is, has just come out in, in recent weeks. There it is uh, on screen now, the cover and available from Penguin. Um, and uh, a history of the present, and indeed it is, uh, Nick, um, in addition to being a, a prodigious journalist and author, um, of course, holds a, a PhD uh, in American politics from, from Oxford and, and uh, studied, as a, studied history as an undergraduate at Cambridge. And, and the book, if I may, um, is, is, reflects, I think, that, that depth of, of scholarship and perspective uh, that's in, that's in Nick's, that Nick brings to his journalism as well, and it's, it's, it's a fantastic tour of the last, I would say, 40, 50 years of American politics. Uh, this is not, Trump is clearly uh, uh, motivating uh, the book as the title suggests, but as Nick will, will get into the conversation in just a moment. Uh, Nick's gifts as a historian, and, and frankly, as a scholar, are in full display. This is a, this is a, a scrupulously uh, well-cited piece. This is not the typical sort of hit and run book you often see from journalists turning their hands to um, what I sometimes uh, rather patronizingly call uh, airport bookstore uh, paperback. Uh, this, is, this is a serious undertaking uh, by Nick and uh, drawing on, on, on it's extremely well-cited uh, throughout and I commend it uh, to everybody. Um, a, a, a history of America's recent past. Uh, Nick's written other books, of course, uh, in, his, uh, in his past. Uh, he's the author of, uh, of John F. Kennedy and the Struggle for Black Equality. And then the book he wrote based on his time uh, in Australia, The Rise and Fall uh, of Australia, How a Great Nation Lost Its Way, uh, sort of a love letter of sorts to his time in Australia. Um, uh, a, a great read, a, a really great read. And, and, and funnily enough, the reference to great, this is the second book where uh, allusions to national greatness appear in the title. Perhaps that's something we might, we might probe in just a minute. Um, but Nick, thanks for joining us. Simon, thank you so much. Thanks for that introduction. Thanks for having me on this webinar. You've hosted some fantastic webinars during this COVID lockdown. So thanks for having me on. And at the risk of getting all Trumpian on you and talking about crowd size, thank you so much to everybody who's joined. I'm overwhelmed <laughs> by the number of people who've tuned in. Yeah, no, we're, it's, and, and thank you to our loyal viewers. Um, there's, there's a hard core of in the, in the mid 100s uh, that come to almost everything we do. And, but Nick, you've turned out a, a good, a good, you know, at least double that today. 
uh, and we'll see how many actually make it onto the call by the end. Um, really fantastic. Um, I think I think your reputation too, Nick, helping helping drive audience today. So 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 thank you. And then of course, people recognizing your name from your time here in Australia. Nick, I, I want to spend a little bit of time with you before we get to audience questions. And I want to leave plenty of time for that. We've got a great set of questions um, pre-booked and of course coming on, on on live. You can click on that Q&A button and lodge a question and we'll, and we'll see how many we can get to. But Nick, I wanted to, the, the title is awfully provocative if I may say so. Uh, but as I alluded to, it is not just about Trump. And I'm wondering if I could just give you a few minutes at the top to, to, to answer the question perhaps that you pose, if that's the way you want to address it, when did America stop being great? And, and why is that the frame for this book, uh, that, this, this survey of the last 40, 50 years of American politics? Simon, what I've tried to do is offer a prehistory of Donald Trump. And frankly, for traceable roots, you could go back to the founding fathers and them coming up with this rather flawed and unrepresentative system of electing a president. You could look at the original sin of slavery. You could look at the Civil War when polarization obviously erupted into armed conflict. But I begin the story with my personal experience of America. I came here in 1984. I flew into Los Angeles on the eve of the LA Games. I watched this extraordinary gold rush for Team USA and heard the chants, USA, USA. And what I was witnessing, of course, was this summertime of American resurgence after the long national nightmare of Vietnam, Watergate, the Iranian hostage crisis, America got its mojo back again. And who was the beneficiary, of course, of that? Ronald Reagan, the great cheerleader for America, the cheerleader during the LA Games. And later that year, of course, he went on to win a landslide, 49 out of 50 states. He almost got the 50-50 sweep. And he came up with that great phrase, of course, it's morning in America. And the book really goes from that experience in 1984, that morning in America, to the American carnage that Donald Trump described in his dystopian sounding inaugural address and the mass mourning in America that we're seeing now as a result of the coronavirus outbreak. Um, it's funny, Nick, uh, I read the introduction where it opens up with this telling the story of a younger version of yourself flying to LAX. It was, you were five years ahead of me. I had exactly the same experience a little after the LA Olympics, but I, I just, at a personal level, the, the intro, <laughs> LAX was my port point of entry. It was the late 80s. Ronald Reagan's photo was still on the wall in the, in the arrivals lobby at, at Bradley International. Um, and and um, I, just as to say, when California, Southern California in particular, is your point of entry, um, and it's so much of the America that you consume through TV and media representations of America, uh, it, it was a, you had me hooked from the first page. It just resonated in a deeply personal way. Uh, for me, um, uh, America at that point, more than living up to the expectations I built up for it um, in, in my imagination as a kid. Um, where I want to, where I want to go, there's so many places I want to take you, Nick, in the, in the limited time I've got here. There's this great line, I think it's in chapter, it might be the introduction or chapter one, where you say, of the two last presidencies in the United States, Obama and Trump, the one that we ought to be the most surprised by is Barack Obama, not Donald Trump. I wonder if you could explain 
why you take that view? I think because if you look at the trend lines of the last 30 years, they lead more towards Donald Trump than necessarily Barack Obama. I don't state explicitly that we should be more surprised by Barack Obama's presidency than Donald Trump's, but I, I say that, you know, we well, shouldn't... Pardon my paraphrase, yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, we shouldn't be surprised by Donald Trump because so many trends culminated and converged in his successful presidential win. Economically, Donald Trump said, the American dream is dead. And that resonated for so many Americans. He felt like castaways in the globalized economy, he felt like castaways in the digital economy. I spent so much time in the Rust Belt in 2016. Those empty factories became echo chambers for the slogan, make America great again. If you were looking at what was happening politically, the Republican Party was increasingly becoming defined by its opposition to Barack Obama. Uh, who was the most virulently anti-Obama candidate? Well, it was Donald Trump. We talked about the political establishment being overwhelmed, and that was so easy for Donald Trump to do because the grassroots of the conservative movement just did not want another establishment candidate. They didn't want to, they didn't want a Bush. They didn't want a Dole. They didn't want a, another Bush. They didn't want a McCain. They didn't want a Romney. They didn't want yet another Bush. Um, so they went for Donald Trump. And again, you know, being an outsider at a time when there was so much dysfunction in Washington, it was entirely understandable why so many Americans would opt for somebody who wasn't embroiled in the Washington system. If you look at the technological developments, you look at the, how the internet became the accelerant of polarization, it placed in Donald Trump's hands the tools that he used so skillfully and effectively, Twitter and Facebook. It also put in the hands of America's foreign adversaries, tools that they could use to meddle in the election. Racially, you know, rather than healing the breach, uh, as many hoped that Barack Obama would do during his eight years in the White House, you know, arguably America was even more racially divided by the end of his presidency. And of mm -hmm. course, Donald Trump, who made his political name really as the untitled leader of the birther movement, obviously exploited mm -hmm. that. And culturally, you know, what were we watching on TV? It was reality TV. Barack Obama had modernized the celebrity presidency and brought it into the digital era. Donald Trump was beneficiary of all of those trends. And in many ways, we shouldn't have been surprised, as frankly I was on the night of 2016. I was, I was at what was supposed to be the Hillary victory party. Uh, we shouldn't have been surprised when uh, he actually won that night. Um, chapter one takes us through the, picks up with your early time in the United States, uh, coinciding with the LA Olympics in particular. Um, where, where uh, Reagan, of course, is, is the incumbent president. But quite apart from that being coinciding with your personal time in America, why does a book with the title, When America Stopped Being Great, why does chapter one focus on Reagan and perhaps on your particular interpretation of the Reagan years? Yeah, because Reagan was such a godfather of American polarization. And from 1984, we travel back to 1964 and the Goldwater campaign. And obviously, Ronald Reagan came to the fore politically uh, when he delivered what came to be known as the speech. And there's this great quote from George Will, you know, um, Goldwater lost 46 states in 1964, but won the election in 1980. Um, Reagan brought <laughs> yeah. together the Monday conservative movement. He was the first candidate, for instance, at the NRA endorsed as a presidential candidate. He brought in the evangelical Christians, uh, a process that had really started with Nixon, but he, that he accelerated, even though he wasn't himself a very devout Christian. 
Um, but what I talk about in the book is, is what Reagan did as president as well. I mean, he, he made the presidency great again in many people's eyes. Um, what's often forgotten about Reagan, he's the first president to actually complete two terms since Eisenhower. And there was this sense that he created the modern day presidency in the form that we recognize it today. I mean, he invented the State of the Union address with the human heroes in the balcony. He perfected the nation in morning speech when he delivered the challenger address. You know, they, they've slipped the surly bonds of earth and touched the face of God. He perfected the national memorial speech when he stood above the cliffs, above the beaches of Normandy and delivered one of the, another great Peggy Noonan speech that she scripted for him. Um, you know, he, he developed the sort of prime time news conference, all of those things. Um, he created a modern day performative presidency, but in dramatizing the presidency, I argue that he also dumbed it down. He made it about the presentational aspects of the job rather than the back office aspects of the job. And as we all know, Reagan wasn't really a full participant in his own presidency when it came to the nitty gritty of policy. When he said during the Iran country, he didn't know what was going on. It wasn't so much plausible deniability <laughs> as plausible reality. And James Baker tells this great story of complaining to Reagan once on the eve of an economic sum summit that he hadn't read his briefing papers. And Reagan turns to James Baker and said, Jim, the sound of music was on last night. Yeah. Um, he really often didn't take the, the, the sort of serious role of the presidency uh, as seriously as the as the presentational aspect. Another thing that Reagan did, which has contributed to the problems that we find ourselves in now, he turned the American people against government. If you look at all the polling, you know, Americans used to have a lot of faith in government. They believed that government could be a force for good. And of course, Reagan delivers his inaugural address and says that, you know, government isn't the solution. It's, it's, it's generally the problem. And ever since then, it's sort of discredited government. It's led to a rundown of government. Uh, the Democrats that won the election um, after him tended to grant quite big ideological concessions um, to Reagan. Clinton, for instance, says the era of big government is over. Reagan comes to Washington a week later and accuses him not only of plagiarism, but grand larceny. And you have that rundown of government, which has become evident in most of the major crises of the last sort of 15 years, when you think of the response to Katrina, and especially now when you speak, think of the response to the coronavirus. That, that's a really interesting take. So let me put you on the spot. Is that when America stopped being great, when one of its major political parties started running as an article of faith, as an organizing principle to attack the efficacy of, of, of well, in particular, federal governing institutions? Look, I mean, what I don't do in the book is sort of isolate a single day <laughs> or a single pivotal event and say, this is the moment. I think Gore Vidal did once. He said it was when America became a detonation. That was the, the moment that he identified. Destination. <laughs> it's, a, it's a story of historical trends. And it's also the story of how each successive presidency contributed to the rise of Donald Trump. You know, we've spoken about Reagan, but, you know, George Herbert Walker Bush is a presidency that I obviously deal with. Um, that moment at the end of the Cold War was the moment when patriotic bipartisanship started to splinter. What was remarkable about post-war American politics was how, at times of crisis, there was this spirit of patriotic bipartisanship. The great mm -hmm. Civil Rights Act of 1964, mm -hmm. which ended up being so polarizing, ironically, was actually an act of bipartisanship. A higher proportion of Republican senators voted for the 64 Civil Rights Act than Democratic senators. Um, during Watergate, the impeachment process that led to the resignation of Richard Dixon was a surprisingly bipartisan 
affair, that great water, great question. When did, when, what did the president know and when did he know it? It was asked by a Republican, Howard Baker. Um, at the end of the Cold War, that starts to fray. And it also coincides with a generational shift in American politics. The greatest generation um, had the torch wrenched from their hands, really, by the baby boomers. And you saw politicians like uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, who had this sense of patriotic bipartisanship, and others on Capitol Hill in the Republican leadership and Democratic leadership, they were replaced by the baby boomers. Um, people who hadn't experienced real war in World War II, they'd experienced the culture wars of the 60s. That was their formative experience. And people like Newt Gingrich and Bill Clinton come to the fore. Yeah, and from there, I just go through successive presidencies and looking for the clues, looking for the historical signs. Uh, and each of them contributed in their own way to, to the rise of Trump. Let's talk about one that you haven't mentioned so far, and that's inequality in America. Um, one of your critiques of the Reagan and, you know, why, why it represents a break. And the historical data actually bear this out. If you were to plot over time, sort of pick your, pick your measure of inequality, Gini coefficient, the difference between the 90th percentile or the 10th percentile on the income distribution, plot that over time, that really starts to accelerate in the 80s and never stops. Doesn't yeah. stop under Clinton, doesn't really stop under... The, through the Great Depression, uh, recession rather, of 2008. Again, is, <laughs> we're not going to define a single point in time, um, if I hear you correctly, on, on when America stopped being great. But say a little bit about the role you think that plays in undermining a sense of American greatness. Yeah, look, one of the overarching arguments in the book is that political polarization and economic polarization have actually happened in tandem. And a lot of that economic polarization, like the political polarization, starts in the Reagan years. I mean, the way that we talk about the missing middle in American politics right now, we also talk about a missing middle in the American economy. You know, the, the, the prosperous American middle class, which has always been the sort of foundation of a prosperous and successful American democracy just isn't there in the same way that it was. And it was in the 1980s where you really begin to see these huge discrepancies between executive pay and shop floor pay, um, the concentration on shareholder value rather than corporate responsibility. Um, you get the, the ideas of Milton Friedman obviously become far more um, uh, take hold in, in, on Wall Street and in American corporate life. Um, you know, Reagan also changed our views about wealth and how wealth became a metric of success. And of course, the great avatar of the 80s was Donald Trump. You know, the great totem of the 80s was Trump Tower. You know, the decade that he came to the fore was the 1980s. And again, he benefited from that sort of greed is good culture uh, that we started seeing in the American corporate life and, and elsewhere. Um, and one of the arguments really is that uh, we have arrived at this point of political polarization, partly because, you know, over the last 40 years, you've had an economy which really isn't working for everybody anymore. And, that, and, and the Internet has really accelerated that. It's been mm -hmm. very telling, you know, during COVID, for instance, when, you know, America has suffered its worst economic shock since the 1930s. You know, Jeff Bezos has added something like 67 billion to his personal wealth. Apple has become the first two trouble the stock price. Yeah. You know, with a massive <laughs> capitalization. You know, COVID has actually accelerated this trend. 
um, towards economic segregation. Yeah. Um, one last thing I want to draw you out on, and that is, you know, me as political scientist talking to a historian slash journalist, and, and that is, um, and, and, you know, credit to you, um, you, you don't, you draw, you go straight there on this one. That's the role of American political institutions. You opened up your pricey, actually, just now with us, Nick, referring to these, you know, dare I say, anti-majoritarian institutions in American, woven into the American constitution, mm -hmm. that if, if not for them, we wouldn't have Donald Trump as president, number one. Um, uh, so Trump can lose the popular vote by 3 million votes and, and still win the Electoral College. We have uh, uh, the United States Senate, which is a constitutionally mandated form of malapportionment. Um, and then we have widespread gerrymandering in, um, in the House of Representatives. Those have been there since the founding. Uh, in, 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 so I'm wondering, you know, again, what in the role that those things play in this story about, you know, the the recent arc of a American greatness. Look, I think one of the great problems for America right now is the deification of the founding fathers and the idea that the Constitution was almost written on tablets of stone that can't really be altered in a in a dramatic way. Uh, but of course, the founding fathers didn't have the system of partisanship or polarization. Um, compromise was kind of assumed to an extent. And of course, you've had a complete breakdown in compromise as the Republican Party has moved to the right and the Democratic Party has moved to the left to, to a lesser degree. Um, you've lacked the kind of moderate congressmen and senators that you need to make the system work. You know, there is no Democrat who is more conservative than a Republican in the House now, and no Republican who is more liberal than a Democrat. Now, to young ears, that sounds well, of course, but that wasn't how it was. Um, there was always this moderate middle, and that was where the deals got made, and the deals don't get made anymore, and you have a system where the checks and balances are used as vetoes and threats, and you have all this brinksmanship, and you know, Washington just doesn't work anymore because there isn't that spirit of compromise, and of course, you know, the founding fathers created this system, um, which is no longer functioning. And I think you do need a constitutional overhaul. And of course, the problem in having a constitutional overhaul is that the frame has made it so hard to change. <laughs> yes, that's the other thing, mate. So you're in the sort of constitutional catch-22. Yeah. And that really is a problem. And as you say, I mean, you're an expert on gerrymandering. That's part of the problem. The idea that congressmen have to seek re-election every two years is another part of the problem because they mount a permanent campaign. And what do they spend so much time doing? They spend so much time raising money. I mean, the Senate has become so unrepresentative. I'm sat in Brooklyn. I think Brooklyn has a bigger population than something like 16 states. Um, you've got an electoral college that is increasingly unrepresentative. We've had five elections in the 21st century. Um, the Republicans have won three of them, but they've only won the popular vote once. Now, I know they don't set out to win the popular vote. I mean, that's not the way they do it. But you have got this problem this crisis of representation. Nation, yeah, yeah. And it, it, it's partly a constitutional problem. Yeah, it's one of the things that's really hitting us between the eyes. I think, you know, Republicans as a national party, the, the disjuncture between the power that they hold and not, you know, it's all perfectly legal and no one's, no one's disputing that. But, but what does it do to a polity, to a society when you do have this systematic 
gap opening up between where the preferences of the people are and the ability of one party to very efficiently convert um, less than majority support, in some cases, substantially less than majority support into majoritarian control and, and vetoes on policy. Um, Republicans, I was just looking at this um, with the election coming up, they won the popular vote for president in 2004. Before that, you've got to go to 1988. Yeah. Um, um, uh, you could tell a similar story about House election. Anyway, um, I, th I yeah. thought we... Yeah. No, I was just going to say, one of the lines that I regret that I wrote in 2016 is demography is destiny. In fact, I wrote the line, it's the demography stupid. You know, there was this essential, this idea that, the, you know, a more multiracial uh, America would actually deliver democratic majority after democratic majority and democratic presidency after democratic president. That hasn't happened. As you say, the Republicans have been brilliant and adept at turning a kind of minority vote into majoritarian rule. Yeah, and, yeah. And it, it, it's been extraordinary to see them do it. No, I, I was right with you in 16. If you'd asked me before the six, and I remember, you know, I, I still pull out the slide deck. That was my stock and trade talk in the run up to the 16 election. We just look at those trend lines uh, about um, uh, the United States becoming increasingly demographically diverse. And I think we overlearned the lessons of the eight and the 12 wins by Obama. Uh, and in the back of my mind, I was always going, well, there's a way Republicans could win. It ain't pretty, but you really rev up uh, the white vote and winning the white vote 60-40 and having them be 73% of the electorate ain't good enough. You've got to win at 65. If you could win at 65-35, and it's kind of what Trump did. And then- Yeah, and there was a great debate after the Romney defeat in 2012. And Rance Priebus, who was the, then the head of the RNC, went with the argument, we need to have yeah. multi outreach, we need to become a party that looks more like America. And there was a dissenting view that frankly was unfashionable and frowned, not frowned upon necessarily, but you know, people like Lindsey Graham were talking about the Republican Party facing a demographic death spiral. But there was this view that if you can maximize you know, white working class turnout, you stand a, a chance because that you know gives you maybe the rust belt, and of course that's essentially what happened in 2016. Yeah, it, it's um, and and that's why this election is so interesting. Do you see a you know Ohio going from its exalted state as these swings? You know, I, I think people are thinking maybe that's gone, um, and now you're having the potential of an Arizona flipping. You know where Barry Water, Barry Goldwater came from. You know, going into the Democratic column, but this Sun Belt Rust Belt inversion. Um, but yeah. Anyway, um, let's turn to some um, some questions from at, at almost ten thirty <laughs> um, our time at least, Nick. Uh, half past halfway through our time. Um, look, there's a great question here from Elizabeth Walter, who's with Design Seventy Nine. Um, hello, Elizabeth. Um, Nick, has, you know, putting your historian hat on, has the US been divided even more in the past, but we've forgotten it to, uh, to history? You know, I often get asked that question by BBC anchors. And I mean, you know, <laughs> you're, you're obviously your glib response is, yeah, the Civil War. I mean, you know, this country right. faced an existential threat um, with American fighting against American. Um, you know, you think about the 1960s. I mean, they were really 
divisive. You know, you had the divisions over the Vietnam War, you had the divisions over the civil rights movement, the struggle for black equality, you had the divisions over the, the feminist movement uh, that was emerging. Um, you had the parties becoming more polarized. I mean, up until 1964, the main schisms within American politics were within the parties rather than between the parties. You know, the Democratic Party was this kind of odd amalgam of Southern racist Democrats and Northern progressives and liberals. Um, so we have seen moments of division before. What I'd say is different about this period, and I alluded to it earlier, is that the politics was more functioning um, then. It, it worked better. There was this compromise. You know, in 1964, in the face, really, of a, something that always, almost was a black rebellion, um, Republicans and Democrats came together to forge the landmark Civil Rights Bill, which demolished segregation in the South. Um, you know, it was the Senate Minority Leader Everett Dirksen and, and the Democratic leadership who forged that extraordinary piece of legislation. Again, as I say, during Watergate, it was surprising to see how much cooperation there was. Uh, and it was Republicans who actually drove down Pennsylvania Avenue in the end to Nixon and said, your time's up, you're going to have to resign. Barry Goldwater was among yeah, them. Right. Yeah, right. Great godfathers. Part of that delegation, that's right. Yeah. Um, but had this sense of patriotic bipartisanship in moments like that. You know, the Reagan years, I mean, Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill, you know, were politically poles apart, but they realized that for the system to work and, and for the national interest to be, you know, put above party interest, they, they had to work together. You just haven't got that anymore. And what's the evidence for it? Well, America's in the midst of the biggest pandemic in a hundred years. We've had more than 190,000 people die and yet this has been a polarizing event. Even the way that the virus has spread has shown up the divide between yeah. blue and red America. You know, it hit the democratic states first, the big cities like New York City where I am now, and it hit the rural states afterwards. And even something as simple as wearing a mask um, becomes politicized. I mean, that is how polarized this country um, has become. And, you know, as we speak on Capitol Hill, they can't agree a stimulus package. They did initially in the early weeks of COVID, but they can't now. And again, it speaks of that level of dysfunction, um, which is historically new. Um, you know, division is a default setting, uh, but this dysfunction, this dysfunction that we see in Washington is something new. Um, sort of a big think question is the one I want to ask you next. And, and making America great, or the idea of countries being great, you've written, this is the second book where sort of engaging with this sense of, our, you know, under if and how and when countries are great or not. Um, Judith Vincent asks, um, the English empire, Russia, and now the USA, each of these countries have been at the top and has slipped down the ladder. Um, well, I wanna, she's, she asks why, I wanna say, um, do you believe that's the case with the United States and, and moreover, if you're posing the question, what does it say about a politics or that that question is on the table, that, that Trump can run on that or inject that? And Reagan did too, by the way, right? If you're putting that at the center, what does it say? You know, are you, is it politics of grievance or of nostalgia that you're not talking about an arc upwards, but that the high watermark is in our past? If you're making that concession, Politically, 
are you already losing the game in a, in a, you know, in a more macro historical sense? Yeah. Look, I think nostalgic nationalism has become such a force in, in global politics. You know, you saw it in Britain ahead of the Brexit debate, obviously. Um, you saw it in America in 2016. I think one of the genius moves that Trump made in, in 2016 in reviving what was a Reagan slogan uh, that Bill Clinton also used in 1992. If you look to the speech he delivered when he launched his candidacy in Little Rock, um, Reagan never defined when America was great. He left it to other people uh, to create this sort of kingdom in their mind. And I thought that was a genius move. And Reagan, uh, sorry, Trump really didn't want to be pinned down on when he thought America was great because he wanted to leave it to other people. Yeah. So for some people, it was the, it was the 1950s, pre the civil rights era. You know, for other people, it was the Reagan times of, of the 1980s. You know, for other people, it was when America won the Cold War. You know, for other people, it was, it was the 90s when they thought they were doing well. It was a decade of peace and prosperity. I argue in the book that the 90s were pregnant with so many of the problems of the 21st century. But for many people, they were great. The pre-internet days when they didn't have to worry <laughs> about the threat from online jobs, threat from automation. Um, and I thought that was, that was genius from Donald Trump, never actually to define what he meant. I think ultimately when he was pinned down, he, he did say Reagan. But for most of the campaign, he just left it for other people to decide. I mean, on the, on the point about decline in America's sort of position in the world, I mean, obviously militarily, America's still, still dominant, all of those kind of things. And, you know, culturally, it's still such a powerhouse. Um, but I do think, and I've never been a declinist. I've always sort of agreed with the sense that, you know, America's always going to hell and never quite reaches it. Um, but obviously, you know, China poses a more of a threat to America than the Soviet Union. You know, there's always this idea that the Soviet Union had the population, but they didn't have the system. You know, when Japan was deemed to be the threat in the late 80s and early 90s, you know, Japan had the system, but it didn't have the population. You know, China arguably has both right now. And um, I also think, you know, America's always been president-proof to a certain extent. There are these other vital centers of power that it can call on. Mm -hmm. um, but I think so many of those are in a reputational ditch right now, whether it's Hollywood suffering from the meteor effect of the Me Too movement, the great universities aren't the hubs of um, social mobility that they used to be. Wall Street really hasn't learned the lessons of 2008. There are some major cities in America that seriously face an existential threat from climate change, whether it's Miami, New Orleans, Houston. You know, the West Coast is obviously a flame at the moment in what could be the yeah. biggest environmental crisis the country's faced. Um, you know, America's got a lot of problems right now, and it's got a dysfunctional politics and a dysfunctional system of government right now in Washington. No, I mean, it, I, I really do believe it's, it's in decline. And, and we've spoken about a post-American world for much of this century. And my, my fear is, Simon, of this post-America America, a country that's almost unrecognizable from the country that you and I fell in love with yeah. when we fell into Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, it's, it's crushing to me professionally and personally and for all the members of our family, all of us are dual citizens uh, with COVID travel. We can't be there at a time of what seems, you know, you'd like to feel, just get some grit under the fingernails and, and experience what's going on over mm -hmm. there firsthand because every now and then you have that sense that, gee, is the place changing in a way that when I next get there, it'll be a step function, a step jump from, from perhaps the America I remember, either to do with COVID, 
but but particularly you know I, I lived for 20 years in california and good on you for bringing up the fires out there there's just horrendous and you know given what we lived through here last summer mm. uh, in australia hey um let's let's keep moving through some um questions from um sonia thompson i mean i mean a few of these are prospective i mean so you know and that's the point of history of the sort you've written to prompt us to ask questions about the present and what comes next um um Sonia asks, um, what do you think it would take for the US to change course or is it too late? Is decline inevitable? Sort of picks up on that last question rather nicely. Yeah, look, I mean, one thing you'd think might lead it to change course is some kind of catastrophic event that would bring people together. But guess what? We're in the midst of the worst pandemic in 100 years, the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression, the most racial turbulence since 1968 and the worst environmental crisis. Uh, is America coming together? No. Um, you know, I was struck last week, I was at Grand Zero uh, for the 19th anniversary yep. of September the 11th. Yep. And that was a moment that America came together. There was this revival of a spirit of patriotic bipartisanship, but it ended up being so short-lived. You know, Bush in the opening weeks after 9-11 was getting approval ratings in the 90s. Um, and there was widespread support for the war on terror when it was applied to Afghanistan. But that moment of national unity just splintered uh, when George W. Bush decided to expand the war on terror into Iraq. And that moment was gone. And we've never had a moment since. Um, we've had the opportunity, COVID being one of them, but we, we've never had a, a moment of, of, of equivalent national unity. Yeah, it's, it's remarkable, Nick. I wonder if you have a view on this, but you look around the world, I look at the way Australian political leaders, for the most part, have played the politics of, of COVID. And I don't mean to say played, that's, uh, that's overly cynical, managed, shall we say. Um, um, crises like that are an opportunity um, to lead. Uh, you know you're going to have this free kick. Uh, the other side are going to play ball um, in this they don't want to seem to be obstructive. Uh, you have this, it's a, it's a, you know, I think of a politician like John Howard, uh, for whom uh, a crisis like this would have been, just give me the ball. Uh, let me, run, you know, that's just open running. Um, the wind at your back politically. Um, for e but for Trump, and now is it Trump or is it just where America is at the moment? That Obama might have had a tough time governing or Hillary Clinton. What, what, what's your sense of, of, of that? Look, I think it was so overwhelming. I think anybody would have had a tough time, for sure. Um, I think one of the problems, I mean, and to your point, I mean, you know, never waste a crisis is one of yeah. the phrases. Yeah, But Donald Trump, of course, at the beginning said, crisis, what crisis? To yeah, right. Callahan, the British Prime Minister, um, in the midst of an IMF crisis. Um, you know, he refused to acknowledge or publicly um, admit quite how bad a crisis America faced. And of course, he didn't want to spook the markets. He didn't want to damage the economy. He began the year as an incumbent with a strong economy. And guess what? That normally gets you re-election. It has done mm -hmm. for president apart from George W. George H. W. Bush. Um, so I think to understand the presidency, often you just have to view it through the prism of his re-election. And I think that was the problem in his handling of COVID. You know, he viewed it through the prism of his re-election. He thought the strong economy was you know, his ace card, which obviously it was, and he didn't want to do anything to spook that. But I do think it's exposed many of the things that sort of contributed to his rise. Um, 
institutional failures in America, um, the spread of misinformation, how the internet is actually a force for negativity and poison. And, you know, we've had an infodemic as well as a pandemic. Um, you know, alas, it's brought out this divide between red and blue America. You know, we've had Tea Party style revolts in places like Michigan, revolting against the, the shutdowns. We've had the lack of belief, you know, as I said, the, 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 the politicization of something as simple as, as a mask. Everything in America these days gets politicized, even the wearing of a mask. And I think, you know, so many of the problems that actually led to the rise of Donald Trump have also come to the fore um, during this COVID crisis. Um, we've got a few questions here about where to for the Republican Party. Um, so Robert Talbot Stern, who's at the University of Pennsylvania, asks if Trump is just the latest incarnation of the evolution of the Republican Party, what is the future of that party? And similarly, Frederick Tews asks, um, if I'm pronouncing your name right, Fred, uh, sorry, could you compare the Tea Party movement circa 2010 with the Trump base of 2016-20 and the dynamics of any change revolution there. So a few questions there about Trump and the contemporary party and where it's going. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the history of the Republican Party over the last 50 years, it's been continually these waves of radicalization, you know, the Goldwater phase, the Reagan phase, the Gingrich phase in the early 90s, um, the Tea Party phase. And now, of course, the Trump phase. You know, if Trump does lose, well, Trump hasn't necessarily gone away. I mean, he can fight in four years' time or a member of his family can seek re-election in four years' time. I mean, obviously, you know, the character of the Republican Party has changed under Trump. The sort of intellectual wing of the Republican Party looks like a derelict shell these days. I mean, the fact that they didn't even come up with a platform at the Republican conventions, mm, mm. the kind of, you know, not the death of conservative intellectualism, but certainly, you know, the very sort of rapid decline of that. And, you know, we think of some of the great thinkers in American politics were thinkers on the right. Yeah. Um, that is a huge problem. And there is this rusted on base um, that is almost cult-like in its devotion to Donald Trump. You know, the, increasingly the Republican Party has looked more like the Trump Party. I'm really struck, Simon, actually, by how the, little the phrase grand old party gets used anymore, the GOP. Yeah, it's almost good point. Good point. I think the Republican, the modern day Republican Party deserves it. And there's a real problem. Um, you know, where do we see the most, one of the most well-known moderate Republicans in the party over the last month? It was at the Democratic Convention when John Kasich uh, <laughs> delivered a speech for the Democrats rather than the Republicans. You know, there are some younger Republicans who are saying, you know, we do need to be more moderate. We do need to be inclusive. But you know, how do you do that at the moment with the conservative base as it is? I just, I, I, I think that's a real problem um, for the Republican Party, especially at the moment when this idea has taken hold, um, that if you, if you get those white working class voters rusted on, you can keep winning. Yeah, um, certainly state by state and, and key Senate races and... Um but again, I, I just keep, if, if the big prize is the presidency, you're making it really hard for yourself. And as we all know, you know, Trump ground that out. You know, here's the other thing, 77,000 votes different in three states, and we'd be having a very different conversation. Um, but it happened. Um, um, uh, here's a, 
look, so many questions are, are picking up on that. Why is that base uh, so rusted on, so hard? Um, and I guess that's the, you might even ask the other question. I, I think it's the flip side of the polarization uh, question. And, and so that's a question from Brett Connors. And, and there's a related question here. You know, culture and media and Hollywood play a really important part in the book, Nick. Uh, it's certainly woven through the Reagan story for, for obvious reasons, given Reagan's background. But, but sort of representing a, and, and Trump's own background too. That's where that thread, you start to pick up that thread and the book comes out in chapter one as well. But I'm wondering to what extent the contemporary media environment, you've already alluded to the internet, but the media environment in the United States is sort of symptom or cause or both um, in this polarization and, and, and this impervious, you know, this with him, it seems no matter what scandal or what dirt gets thrown at Trump, his approval rating just will not budge off of, of 42%. Yeah, let me deal with the media first of all. I mean, the sure. media has become more polarised in America for sure. I mean, that was a process that began during the Clinton years with the launch of Fox News under Roger Rails. One of the great godfathers of polarisation obviously worked in Nixon and uh, Reagan and, and George Herbert Walker Bush came up with the Willie Horton ad. Um, that was... Um, and then, of course, the counter to um, Fox was MSNBC um, and the talkback radio, you know, the, the rise of people like Rush Limbaugh. That, that's a really big deal. And I think that was, it was almost like the media became a kind of polarization industrial complex. Um, <laughs> I think what happened in 2016, we are still learning lessons from. Uh, were we culpable in the rise of Donald Trump? I think we were. What Les Moonves said, that he was then the head of CBS. He got hit by a Me Too and, and had to go in disgrace. He said, you know, it may, may not be good for America, but it's great for CBS. And I think a lot of media organizations thought that. You know, the new economy hadn't only hammered the Rust Belt, it had hammered the journalistic belt as well. Yep. You know, yep. the rivers of gold had dried up. And into these dry riverbeds, Donald Trump threw a lifeline. You know, that first Republican debate. Yeah. It got highest ratings for a non-sport event on cable in the history of yeah. TV. You know, Donald Trump was a job creation, a one-man stimulus package for a media industry that was, that was on his knees. He understood the attention economy as well. I mean, you know, the, the, the challenge for online companies now is to get your attention. Well, Donald Trump certainly did that. And, you know, I always think of CNN, one of their default um, screens during the um, 2016 campaign. You know, it was to go to Donald Trump if he was speaking. But even if he wasn't speaking, they show an empty podium. Yeah, yeah. And he's yeah. going to come on soon. And it was like we got addicted to Donald Trump. And it was this, you know, great dysfunctional relationship. But he, he kind of understood, um, I think, something about the media, which is we often report and write campaigns that we want to cover ourselves um, based on journalistic entertainment value. And I talk in the book about better story bias, how often the bias of the media isn't liberal, it isn't conservative, it's a bias towards who delivers the better story. So, you know, George W. Bush was a better story than Al Gore, who wanted the kind of third Clinton term with the boring understudy in the lead. You know, it's far better to have, you know, Bush too, the restoration, great story. 2008. Barack Obama was a better story than Hillary Clinton. I think so much of the coverage was weighted in his favor rather than hers. Um, 
And in 2016, who was the better story, Trump or Hillary Clinton? You know, Trump for sure. And I mean, you know, we've all seen the studies which show how much free television he got. You know, um, uh, fundraising in America is to buy TV time. Well, guess what? Donald Trump didn't need to buy any TV time because he was give, being given it for free. You know, I really do think the media played a big role in the 26th campaign. And also the way that the media kept on trying to show that there was no liberal bias was to focus on one scandal from Hillary Clinton, which was the emails, when the kind of strobe effect of all the Trump scandals got sort of diffused. Um, and if you actually look at the coverage of the New York Times, they spent more time talking about the emails of Hillary Clinton than, than Trump scandals combined. So I, I do think the media needs to take a big look at itself in the mirror for what it did in 2016. And were we culpable? Yeah, I think we probably were. That, 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 those are some very, I mean, great observations there, Nick, very astute. Um, um, if, if, if I didn't get to that part of the book, but, but worth buying for that alone, I would, I would argue that take on from a journalist and with the sense of history um, as to how the media has, has had its part to play. Um, um, I've just got a great question here. Um, um, oh, look, let's just knock this off. Um, Nati uh, Putukul um, has put this up twice now. <laughs> uh, clearly an Andrew Yang fan. Let's, let's just <clears throat> deal with this. Did Andrew Yang ever have a real chance to win Democratic nomination? Huh, not the question I thought. Um, to, yeah, is Andrew Yang yeah, ever, ever going to win the Democratic uh, nomination? Uh, is the question. Look, I mean, my next door neighbor actually helped run his campaign. Oh, is that right? Oh, not that off base as I thought. Great. Okay. But about three years ago, he said, come around and meet this guy. He's running for president. And I had dinner with this pretty nerdy guy, very shy, not somebody even dominated the table, let alone dominated the debate you know, stage. Yeah. Yeah. The stage. So Andrew Yang was a real surprise package. I mean, it was almost like he sort of, adopted a new persona. I mean, whether he was just off that night or whether, you know, he didn't family poor, I could imagine the family poor, but he, he adopted this extraordinary persona during the campaign, which actually made a big impact with the Yang gang. You know, it became quite a thing, um, younger voters especially. And he was also one of those single issue candidates, you know, the universal basic income, which became a real big thing. And what he was saying about the decline of the Rust Belt, what he was saying about you know, the wave of artificial intelligence that's going to wipe out many more jobs, blue-collar jobs and white-collar jobs, you know, really did have resonance. And I think he became a really interesting candidate. I don't think he was ever going to win um, the nomination. Um, but he did far better than yeah. any of us. And I think his contributions during the debates were, you know, intellectually some of the most interesting um, that we had. And, you know, we all started talking about UBI, universal basic income. And that yeah, was yeah, yeah. of Andrew Yang. And I think his candidacy, every now and then a candidacy comes along that you know is not going to go anywhere. Um, but it's really, really interesting. And I thought that was the Yang candidacy this year. And it's, it's very telling, actually, because when they had the Democratic Convention, um, they didn't give him a speaking slot. And the Yang gang really kicked up a, a, a fuss and said, you've got to have Yang on. And they realized, actually, that this was an important demographic. He yeah, was yeah. the younger voters especially, and they gave him a speaking slot by lunchtime. Um, yeah. so the Democratic Party realized that Yang is, is a big deal. I, I would think that in a Biden administration, he, he, he could end up running a, uh, one of the government departments in Washington. 
Yeah, yeah. No, he, he certainly tapped into a really important set of issues, particularly for younger voters. And, you know, I did a bit of field work this cycle in Iowa around the primaries and his people were, were passionate, um, young, but injecting that set of questions onto the national political stage before COVID came along, of course, and blew it all, you know, and, and, yeah. and uh, George Floyd, of course. But um, anyway. Yeah, those um, days when you thought the dysfunction of the Iowa caucus was a big story. I mean, it just seemed yeah. like absolutely right. trivial footnote. Now. Yeah. yeah. Um, we can't have a conversation um, about American politics here in Australia um, without asking, first of all, about China, um, your sense of how, well, let's, let's zoom right out. Uh, American competition with China is part of the, the arc right now. It, it's front and foremost for us at the US Study Center, big, big question we're focused on. Um, and I think it dovetails with sort of your bigger narrative engaging this question about American greatness but, but we can bring that down to earth a little more, if you like, Nick. And that is just to ask how you see it playing out in this election cycle. It's, it's on the stump speech for Trump. He's going after Biden as being a, a tool of the left, but also a, a tool of Xi Jinping. I'm, I'm just, your sense of both the politics and, and some of the policy around China coming out of the US at the moment and, and after the election. Yeah. Uh... I mean, China obviously looms large in the kind of populist rhetoric in the way that he's framed COVID. Um, you know, and some of the sort of arguably xenophobic terminology he's used, the China virus, you know, they've used even, you know, they've spoken about the Kung flu, all that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. So he's, he's, you know, Trump's politics are based to a certain extent on creating a bogeyman. And one of the problems he's had in this electoral cycle is making a bogeyman out of Joe Biden. I mean, it's... Uh, it was easy in 2016 with Hillary. There was so much Hillary and there was Hillary hatred that had accumulated over the years. I mean, I sort of say in the book that she almost lost the election in 1992 when um, she did that TV interview on 60 Minutes and said, I'm not some Tamil Winnet, stand by yeah, my man. Yeah, yeah. You know, Trump got more women voters than Hillary and that was part of the reason. Um, so Trump's looking for a bogeyman and, and China's a useful uh, fall at the moment for that. And um, he's hitting them on coronavirus and he's continuing to hit them on trade. And I think what's interesting about the trade war actually is it's really hurt a lot of by, uh, a lot of Trump's supporters. Some of those soybean farmers, some of those lobster fishermen in Maine that could become quite useful because Maine's a state that he needs that, that electoral college voting. Um, you know, they've been really hurt, but they've, they've, they've really admired a president who's actually been prepared to stand up to China. And I wonder how that has changed the sort of paradigm and how that has changed uh, the shift. I mean, even though Barack Obama, you know, he came up with a Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership as his, you know, geopolitical gang-up strategy on China to, to yeah. contain, I thought, you know, many American voters just thought he was far too weak and accommodationist towards China. Um, you know, Biden's promising to be tougher. Um, and I think that is a way that, you know, Donald Trump has shifted things in a way. Yeah. You know, the, making American leaders, both Democrat and Republican, be far tougher in their response to China, yeah. Yeah, that, that'd be our assessment too. I think it'll, if Trump loses, um, I think from a foreign policy perspective, this re-engineering of the problem set, uh, the strategic mindset um, that got articulated very early on in 2017, 
you know, cementing great power rivalry or return to great power competition, strategic rivalry, all, the, all those sorts of words, meaning uh, counterinsurgency and ethnic conflict and um, counterterrorism are no longer the primary missions of the United States strategic affairs community. Um, that endures, uh, no doubt in my mind at all. And, um, and, and I think Biden is there and the, and, the, and the people around him, you look at the people he's, he's drawing on for advice and the, the likely security and foreign policy team he's building, I, I, that'd be our assessment too. Um, Hey, and look, we're coming, we're starting to run short of time. Oh, so many great questions have been coming in. I'm, I'm going to pick um, one from Ross Stitt. And, and Nick, you, you lived in Australia. You're acutely aware of the intimacy and depth of the connection between Australia and the United States. Um, so Ross Stitt asks, what does it mean for Australia if America is no longer great? <laughs> Well, it changes that delicate balance that you've always had between, you know, going with the country that underwrites your security and the country that underwrites your prosperity. And that delicate dance that Australian diplomacy and that, that tightrope that you've walked to switch metaphors, you know, arguably becomes trickier. Um, you're going to have to hedge, I guess. Um, you're going to have to be more dex you know, dexterous. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, what I say about Australia's relationship with America, I think, you know, it will change if there is a change in, in American leadership. You know, Biden, I think one of the first things that he will do is to try and restore the, the traditional relationships, the post-war relationships upon which he would believe that American dominance was built. And obviously, which have been undermined, trashed to a certain extent by Donald Trump. He just doesn't have that historical sense. He just doesn't have that loyalty to those relationships, whether it's with Japan, Australia, Britain, you know, obviously his first phone call with Malcolm Turnbull ended in a huge row about the refugee um, settlement program here. So, you know, I do think, I do think that'll change. Um, but yeah, I mean, if, if America is, you know, uh, in decline, then, you know, that's going to have a recalibration of, of, of your policy and how you balance these two things, which, you know, frankly, I think Australia's done really well. Um, yeah. In the last 20 years, I think the, the balancing act has been one of a, a sort of very clever juggler. Um, they've pulled it off with extraordinary skill, I think. Um, but that juggle gets 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 harder. Yeah, that'd be our assessment. And I think, you know, it's been a really, I think, Australian diplomacy and, a, and Australian, the Australian strategic affairs community, if, if I may, I think um, has been forced to sort of develop a bit of, strategic sort of backbone and, and autonomy and far less docile in the alliance relationship. And again, nothing the Australian government will ever buy a billboard space about and, and chest thump about. But I think if you're watching very closely to the, to the bilateral um, and, and moreover sort of regional posture too and regional initiatives, that's very much the mindset. Um, having to be a bit more self-reliant and perhaps more than a bit. Um, hey, look, that brings us to the top of the hour and um and with a big audience we will run the time um we we um mindful of everybody's time and it's getting late in the evening for nick and look thanks to so many people i'm just staring at a screen full of great questions that we weren't able to get to <clears throat> could clearly have gone for another half hour an hour easily um and um look we we might have to check in after the election and and see see how you're doing nick um and 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 pick up on your reporting 
from the field that I imagine you're going to try and do get out into out of Brooklyn, <laughs> the Brooklyn bubble, and and into some of those swing states. Um, <clears throat> for those of us that can't, uh, who are here in Australia, but thank you. Simon, it's been great. Thank you for um, your interest in the book. Thanks for everybody who's tuned in. Um, it's going to be a roller coaster ride over the next few weeks. So buckle up. <laughs> it's going we'll to be. Do. We'll do. And, and we'll look for your dispatches um, on bbc.co.uk. Uh, keep an eye out for the slash news or whatever the right you. <laughs> um, and Janine, what have we got coming up? Can we get some slides up to tease? We've got some amazing talks in the, in the pipeline. Oh, this is one I'm, I'm so looking forward to. So this is um, Ruth Greenwood, the fabulous Ruth Greenwood, an alum of the University of Sydney, graduated in law from the University of Sydney and went off to the United States where now she sits at the very heart of, a, of tons of legal work um, um, in, in ahead of this election and, and others. She got me um, into court uh, uh, challenging gerrymandering, but, but Ruth has done very, very well, like so many Australians do in the United States, and uh, is now based out of Boston, out of uh, Harvard Law School, um, but uh, is a vice president or co-president or co-director of the litigation uh, project, rather, at the Campaign Legal Center, one of America's biggest and most active uh, good government interest groups, partnering with Common Cause and the League of Women Voters uh, to, to make sure access to the polls uh, remains free and fair. And so we'll have a chat about the hundreds and hundreds of law cases already underway across the United States. And that's coming up on Thursday, the 24th at 10 a.m. Sydney time. Um, again, um, Ruth, proud alumnus of the University. And then look at that, Charlie Cook. How good is this? Um, Charlie Cook, the, the Dean of, of Election Punditry in, in the United States, and our good friend and, and, and non-resident fellow at the US Study Center, Bruce Wolpe, has reached out to his old friend, Charlie Cook, uh, to get that talk uh, on the book as well. That'll be Monday, the 28th of September. Um, I'm, I'm, as a fellow elections tragic, I'm deeply invested in that talk. Um, and, and you can catch up with our talks at, at slash catch up on, on the main site at the US Study Center. Um, all these talks find their way to our YouTube channel. The audio goes up almost immediately. If you can't watch in real time, you can always catch up or send it on to friends and family and whatnot later on. Uh, thank you again, Nick. 